The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Just when you've read every book on every major officer in the war, every biography of every general, and you think you're done, another one shows up. The Civil War continues to reveal figures that we thought we knew something about, or perhaps knew nothing about. This week, the man who commanded the Union Reserve at Chickamauga, the man who brought the end of slavery to Texas, the man whom only people listening to this show have ever heard of, General Gordon Granger and his biographer, Robert C. Connor, joining us to discuss Granger tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you, as is usually the case, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a pleasant, uh, unseasonably chilly April evening in uh, the spring of 2014. We're getting near the end of the academic year. The classes are coming faster somehow, uh, day by day, more of them than ever. Uh, More reports are due at the end of the year, more of the usual things adding up. Uh, But the weather is generally getting nicer. The sun's up a little bit later. 
this show continues to dominate the statistics on Voice America with uh, more people clicking on Civil War Talk Radio than any other show for the last several months. So thank you listeners for doing that and hope you can continue to benefit from this. Uh, Many of you, of course, are in suspense from last week wondering how the J.H. Rose rampant uh, girls soccer team is doing this week and uh, last week they had beaten their one of their rivals for the first time in 21 years but on Thursday they played their other rival who are currently number one in the state that didn't go so well so we'll just skip right over that uh, tonight they're leading at halftime over South Central one nothing things are looking good there it's time for the playoffs in basketball NBA for those who follow that the Stanley Cup starts tonight. All kinds of excitement in the sporting world. The uh, hometown Detroit Red Wings are in for the 23rd year in a row, which made me think as I was teaching uh, U.S. history modern survey to the students the other day, I looked at my notes and I had written uh, in some old lecture notes as we were discussing the decade of the 1980s, which I find it hard to conceive of as history. I, I have ties that I wore in the 1980s, and I'd written in my the margin of my notes, uh, students were all born in this decade, but of course, that's not even true any longer. Now, none of the students are born in that decade, and none of the students were born, or very few of them, before the Detroit Red Wings last failed to make the playoffs 23 years ago. Uh, they don't remember the 1980s. They don't remember the 1990s. Uh, we're only a few years away from the uh, entering students not remembering what happened on September 11th, uh, 2001. With uh, It'll be history to them as well. It's just amazing how time flies past uh, the Civil War. Uh, as long ago as it is, 150 years, uh, is still not... Uh, uh, it, it's still hard to... Uh, grasp in some ways how recent it was, how, how few generations have passed since that time. But enough philosophizing, let's return uh, to history, return briefly to the future, let you know who's coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week, James Conroy, author of Our One Common Country, will talk about the peace conference at Hampton Roads in uh, 1865. Catherine Meyer, has a book on the environment in 1862 Virginia called Nature's Civil War. Then Linda Barnacle joins us to talk about the Battle of Millican's Bend. On May 14th, Bjorn Skapson joins us with the uh, discussion of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, where he is employed. We'll also talk about the Battle of Shiloh and programs he runs there. On the 21st, Michael C.C. Adams uh, author of a new book, Living Hell, The Dark Side of the Civil War. And after a Memorial Day break, we'll return on June 4th with Rachel Sheldon and Washington Brotherhood, a book about politicians in D.C. before the Civil War and how people from different sections got along before they started killing one another. So, hope you can join us for those. Check them out on www www.impedimentsofwar.org That's the website that Mark Gaffney runs that tells you what's happening each week in Civil War Talk Radio Land. Uh, you can buy books that you hear about on the show by clicking there and the, the click-through goes to Amazon and 
gets a little bit of income for the website, keeps it afloat. Uh, you can now also, I've learned, buy paperback copies of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, a uh, book I wrote some years ago that is back in print in paperback form. They're also uh, looking at producing an ebook of it. UNC Press is thinking of doing that. Uh, we have to track down the people who supply the images and get their permission for this newfangled publication style. So if that works out, I'll let you know about that as well. And if you still have money left over after you've bought all the books you've heard about on the show, you can just send me your extra dollars uh, through the donation button on the website. Uh, Thanks to all who've contributed recently. The money goes to buy books that are used to be read on the show if the publishers don't cough them up for some reason. And if they do, the money goes into uh, any number of other sources. Could be Daughter Maria's College Fund. Still waiting to see where that's going to be. Uh, Plenty of other places we can spend that money. But we've got a copy of tonight's book in front of us. General Gordon Granger, The Savior of Chickamauga and the Man Behind Juneteenth. Uh, The author is Robert C. Connor, and he joins us tonight to talk about General Granger. Uh, Bob, are you there? I am there, Jerry, yes. Thank you for uh, joining me on the show tonight, and uh, welcome. Uh, tell us a little bit, uh, uh, well, there, there are two things. Uh, you and I have not met on the Civil War trail yet, and uh, I don't know a lot about, uh, or didn't before reading the book, I should say, about General Granger, and I guess that might be the case of some of our listeners. Uh, but l- let me start with you. What, uh, what brought you to this particular figure in Civil War history? Well, the uh, cynical answer, I guess, is that nobody had written a biography about him before, so he seemed like a good subject for one. But really, it it came in reading about uh, George Thomas and about the campaigns he was involved in, and the very interesting role of Granger, and then trying to find more about Granger and finding there wasn't a lot out there, and so thinking that digging it up would be uh, would be the way to go. So is this uh, related to your day job? Is this something, uh, a passion pursued uh, out of interest? Uh, what what well, do you do when it, you're not writing about uh, general Well, writing? I'm a journalist, um, but uh, at the moment I'm kind of a freelance online journalist for a small publication near where I live. I used to be work on daily newspapers, but that... Business uh, has been in decline, so after I was laid off a few years ago, I started doing various other things. I was the site interpreter at Grand Cottage for a while and was uh, looking to to write a book, and uh, this seemed like a good topic. I've been interested in Civil War history my whole life, like most of the people listening to us, and and there are many extraordinary stories, as you know, in the war. And, and I, when you started off um, the show and you were saying that you, sort of you can't believe that there are still things to be discovered, in my opinion, there are lots. There are lots of books remaining to be written about generals who have not yet been had a biography written about them. And many of these stories are just absolutely extraordinary and, immigrant generals and Frank Herron. I don't think anyone's written a book about him. I mean, there's just all sorts of extraordinary tales. There's the guy who served under 
Granger at Chickamauga, James Stedman. I seriously considered writing a book about him because nobody has. And again, just a fascinating life. I mean, these guys, almost all of them were completely obscure figures in 1861, as, of course, were U.S. Grant and many others who became much more famous. But um, these extraordinary stories are, are still there waiting to be told. Well, that's really true. There are, uh, there, there really is no limit in sight yet for what can be told. I, your story reflects something I recall when I wrote about the Army of the Ohio that no one had written about that army in in a hundred years, uh, and it was one of the three. You know, becomes the Army of the Cumberland, becomes an mm-hmm. army everyone's heard of. Now there's a couple books about it, but. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, you, you can look and discover there are these major institutions or major figures uh, and major topics, too. I, I'm fascinated by the, the changes. The, looking at the shows in, in the weeks ahead, uh, we have a book on the environment, and we had one of, uh, earlier this year, the same similar topic on uh, environmental history of the Civil War. No one had thought of that 15 years ago, and now people are, are getting right. into that. So with Granger, you've you've got someone who no one has really followed much. One danger with doing this or with picking a topic this way is sometimes there's a good reason. And you already mentioned there's not much source material. Um, There were a couple of um, long obituaries written for military publications or one for a West Point publication and one for a the uh, Army of the Cumberland Veterans Organization. They were written by Civil War generals, by Thomas Wood and David Stanley. And there's a lot of information in them, but they weren't books per se. They were kind of long magazine-type obituaries, basically. But um, apart from that, my, my major source was really the official records of the Army and, of course, the memoirs of other generals. And I should say, I did have some personal, I did uh, talk to a descendant of Granger's who had some letters, and obviously I went places and looked at battlefields and his birthplace and his gravesite. His birthplace, or at least where he grew up in, in upstate New York, you described that some in your book, it sounds like it's a pretty out-of-the-way place. It is. It's um, it's still very rural. It's orchards now when it was farms when Granger was there. I, I myself live in upstate New York, and again, talking about your intro, we had snow last night here. with snow on the ground this morning. And whereas I live in eastern New York, Granger came from the real snow belt uh, part of the state uh, near the uh, near Lake Ontario. So it was pretty hard country. And when he was growing up in the 1820s, it was still very much just settled wilderness. You don't really think of upstate New York as the frontier in the 19th century. And it wasn't, you know, he wasn't subject to Indian raids, but just uh, in the decade before he was born, it was part of the front line of the War of 1812 and really had not been settled until his father was one of the first settlers, one of the first white settlers in that area. Well, that... that, uh... Uh, on the snow, uh, my mother, who often listens to the show, lives in Michigan, and she tells me they, they broke the record yesterday uh, with a couple inches of snow, the snowiest winter ever. And I guess Yeah, we've had a tough York, winter up, in, up here in upstate New York. 
it, it's it's been brutal everywhere. It, it snowed several times here in North Carolina, and that was pretty shocking. But the uh, so Granger grows up in this this you know rural area, frontier area, and uh, as, as with the so many people who are going to uh, you know appear in the Civil War ends up uh, going to. Uh, 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 to West Point, did, did uh, well, where where do we pick up the story? I'm plugging in my headphone here. It's dingy. Well, he does go to West Point. Stuff. He goes a little bit later than some people. He's 19 when he goes, um, almost 20, actually. And um, he actually spends a couple of years as a, a teacher in one-room schoolhouses, sort of, waiting, I think, to get the okay to, for West Point. But then after he goes, he spends the rest of his life in the Army. Um, unlike some, unlike quite a lot of people who are in and out of the Army, Granger just stays in it for the rest of his life. Now, while he's in, he, he meets a lot of the people, obviously, that he's going to deal with uh, you know, going forward. Uh, and one of the most significant ones is is U.S. Grant, uh, you, you theorize that uh, Grant and Granger started a lifelong mutual disadmiration society uh, at West Point. Is, how, is there evidence for that, or is it just uh, circumstantial? There is not evidence for that. They were at West Point together for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. they were in Mexico together. They both had very brave and good records in the Mexican War. Um, the, the first evidence of a problem between them is in 1862, Sheridan refers to, Grain, to Grant not caring for Granger, and that's really before they've had much involvement, although Granger was serving then under Rosecrans, under Grant, so he was under Grant's command, but not any detailed and the only battle of the war in which they're really together is at Chattanooga. And there is a lot of discord between them at the battle and immediately following the battle. And I do go into that in some detail. And even though this is my first book, you have to be kind of brave in, in wading into some of the controversies because really there's been nobody to kind of take Granger's side in these controversies. And some of the some of what's the generally accepted history of Chattanooga as, as it relates to Granger is, I think, quite wrong. And I think I show that in the book. There's a, for example... Let's, if, yeah, I'm I'm just, let's take a short break right here and, and come back and get to that, because that's where we really get to Gra- the heart of Granger's career. Uh, but we do need to take a, a quick uh, interruption. So we're going to take a short break uh, right now. We're talking today with Robert C. Connor, author of General Gordon Granger, The Savior of Chickamauga, and The Man Behind Juneteenth. We'll talk more when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Bob Connor, author of General Gordon Granger, The Savior of Chickamauga and the Man Behind Juneteenth. We talked a little bit about Granger's pre-war career, his background, uh, his obscurity uh, to some extent, and the fact that there are still many uh, people out there as once prominent as Granger, a Corps commander, uh, who have not yet been the subject of uh, modern biographies, and Granger is certainly one of them. When we left off, we were talking about uh, Granger's relationship with uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, they knew each other at West Point. They served together in Mexico. And uh, Bob, as you noted, as early as 1862, before they'd had much service together in the Civil War, Sheridan was already noting that uh, Grant did not have much use for Granger. A few weeks ago, uh, Frank Varney was on the show. He's written a book about Rosecrans and Grant, and the, the thesis of which is that Grant never gave Rosecrans a fair shake, and historians haven't either. Uh, is the same true of, of Gordon Granger? Did Grant never give him a fair shake, and that's why we don't know much about him? Well, that's an interesting question, and I think you could throw George Thomas into the mix also. Um, I... 
just to be fair to Grant, that from Grant's perspective, the Army of the Cumberland was not a successful army, certainly not compared to Grant's own Army of the Tennessee, which had captured an army at Donaldson, which had won the Battle of Shiloh, and then captured Vicksburg. I mean, that record could not be matched by the Army of the Cumberland, which really, you could argue, never really won a victory until the Battle of Chattanooga when it was under Grant's command. However, I think it's unfair to look at Rosecrans and Thomas and Granger in a harsh and negative light, because compared to the Army of the Potomac, say, or really any other army except Grant's army, the Army of the Cumberland has a fairly creditable record. That I think Rosecrans had a bad day on September 20th, the, the uh, final day of the Battle of Chickamauga, but otherwise I think he has a pretty distinguished record in the war. I think that Thomas obviously has a very distinguished record, and Thomas, as you know, was almost fired by Grant just before the Battle of Nashville, which mm-hmm. fortunately he was not. But, I mean, that's an indication that Grant really was not, did not have a, a fair and balanced view of those commanders. And I do think that does apply to Granger, yes. Well, let's go back earlier in Granger's career uh, for a moment. Uh, when the Civil War begins, he, he was still a first lieutenant. He did not really yeah, prosper in the pre-war army. He was 39 years old. He was still <laughs> a lieutenant. I mean, even in the peacetime army, that's pretty obscure. But then again, we're talking about Grant. I mean, Grant, as you know, was a clerk in his father's store in 1861. So... Yeah, it's unimaginable what happens to all of these guys, or most of them. They they they're plucked up from from complete obscurity, and then suddenly are, are playing these very significant roles in major events. Where, where does Granger get his first break, or where does he first come to the attention of someone uh, higher up the ladder? Well, he's um, comes to the attention of George McClellan um, and serves with briefly on McClellan's staff. Excuse me. In Ohio, he's promoted to captain. Really, immediately the war starts. He's still a captain at the Battle of Wilson's Creek in Missouri, and plays a very prominent role in that battle, despite his low rank. Is mentioned in everybody's dispatches very favorably. He's kind of running around, plugging holes, sort of serving as a staff captain, but also commanding troops, in effect, in, in a couple of instances. and So that causes him, almost immediately after, to become colonel of the uh, 2nd Michigan Cavalry, which becomes a famous regiment. Sheridan, whom we mentioned, takes, o- takes that regiment over from Granger on Granger's recommendation when Sheridan had just been a captain in 1862. And then Granger goes on after Sheridan continues to serve under Granger. And the, Sheridan is recommended to, for a brigadier generalship uh, by Granger and other, other commanders, other generals. And so really Granger is a mentor to Sheridan early in Sheridan's career. But then Sheridan uh, wisely attaches himself to Grant and then is promoted beyond uh, Granger by the end of the war. So the uh, so they both at one time commanded, however briefly, the Second Michigan Cavalry. When 
when I got to that part in the book, it, it struck a chord because there's there's that wonderful regimental history, the, the hundred battles in the West, uh, mm-hmm. about that regiment, which I flashed back to sitting in the uh, subway station in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when I was in graduate school. Uh, and as longtime listeners to the show uh, will recall and perhaps be shocked by, I have failed to mention for some weeks now that I have a graduate degree from Harvard University, uh, always trying to get my money's <laughs> worth out of that. So I'll put it in right here. But while I was in grad school, I remember reading 100 Battles in the West and thinking this is, uh, it, it, it's a very enlightening, uh, well-written book on cavalry service, which you don't see much of. But Granger in that book, and, and this applies to him throughout the war, uh, did not make a lot of friends. His personality was not the most charming. Well, he did have, uh, it depends how you look at it. You can either look at him, as I think perhaps Grant did to some extent, as a swaggering martinet who was just not Grant's type of soldier. I mean, they had, Mm -hmm. they were both personally courageous uh, under fire, but they reacted differently. Grant became calm under fire when Granger became excitable. He was, his discipline could be regarded as harsh, although it seems to me that most of the people who initially thought it was harsh came to respect him and to see the reason for the discipline, especially when they came into combat, that he, he, he was a good trainer of troops, had something of George McClellan's uh, attribute in that but he there are you know there are elements i don't try to sugarcoat that um mm-hmm. general james wilson has a famous uh, story about granger being drunk in knoxville at christmas of 1863 and sending a telegram to grant which parodied uh, a statement of thomas had made when Thomas had sent a serious telegram to Grant a couple of months before about Chattanooga, saying, we'll hold it till we starve, that Granger sent that telegram drunkenly, uh, a similarly worded telegram to Grant from Knoxville when Knoxville was in no danger. So it was really things like that I can't defend, obviously. Mm, not, not, not a good political move. Not a good political move. So Granger, I mean, Grant did have some reasons for his antipathy to Granger. I'm not going to pretend that he didn't. But I don't think that means Granger was, Granger, there's also a Granger side to the story, especially after the Battle of Chattanooga when Grant is furious at Granger because Granger is not moving quickly enough to relieve Knoxville, but Granger's side of the story is he's trying to su- get adequate supplies for his troops, and this is not a, a frivolous matter. These troops have been underfed on short rations for months. They had not, by the time the Chattanooga battle is fought, most of those troops had not been back up onto full rations because that city had been under siege, and they had inadequate uh, clothing. Many of them didn't have any boots. They were barefoot. They didn't have tents. And many of them died that winter in the harsh winter, what turned out to be the harsh winter conditions in East Tennessee. And Granger, throughout that winter, and you can argue perhaps a bit ineffectively, but he was trying to get adequate supplies for those troops. And he was 
fighting with Grant and continuing to press that point. And when Grant eventually visited the troops in East Tennessee in January, I believe it was January of 1864, he finally saw for himself and took steps to get adequate supplies to them. But there there were some real reasons why Granger was difficult to deal with, and some of them were to the he was sticking up for those troops. And so I think they came to respect him because they saw that he was prepared to put his own career on the line in order to save their lives from hardship and privation and resulting in death in many cases. There's a, you know, I guess a fine line between being you know, blunt and honest and direct, even with your superiors, and being a loudmouth jerk. And it, 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 it's not always clear where, where some people fall on that. Uh, we all know people, I'm sure, on both sides of that line. But I got <laughs> no, the sense you, you, you can make that case. You can make that case, yeah. It, it, I got the sense he, that, that it really depended who was writing about Granger as to which, where they perceived him. He certainly had friends in the Army. Uh, Pope, uh, I think we've mentioned, uh, McClellan we've mentioned, David Stanley, the who also served out west, and and initially Sheridan, but then Sheridan uh, hitches his wagon to a different star. Uh, but there were people who thought thought very well of Granger, and, and there were his, one his of the patrons. more objective sources. I think is um, General James Wilson, who was uh, initially a protege of Grant's, and then became close to George Thomas. And he's the guy who tells the story about Granger being drunk at Knoxville. So, you know, he's prepared to tell the truth when it comes out. But we were talking a little bit earlier about Chattanooga and about Mm -hmm. what I regard as this kind of myth that the assault on Missionary Ridge was delayed for an hour because, according to, you know, even very good modern historians like Peter Cousins, who are basically picking up a myth, in my opinion, which was first promulgated by Charles Dana, the War, the war Department uh, Stanton's guy in the Army. But the myth is that this order was delayed for an hour because Granger was distracted directing an artillery battery. And that seemed to me kind of implausible on its face, especially as according to the myth, when he's finally... People ask him, Thomas and Grant ask him what's going on. He lies to them and says, nobody told me. And it's just, it's just seemed to me an odd, an odd story to be accepted mm-hmm. as history. And when I looked into it, especially when I looked into Wilson's memoirs, I found out that it's not true, that Wilson's memoirs make clear that Grant had not ordered an attack on Missionary Ridge. There was a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, a standoff, if you like, between mm-hmm. Grant and Thomas, which is what caused the delay. Basically, Grant was making suggestions, or what Thomas took as suggestions of, as to what Thomas should do, but deferring to Thomas and not explicitly ordering him to make this assault, which Thomas did not order. And that's what happened, and I think the book pretty clearly shows it. But until you have somebody actually write a book about somebody, it's easy for history to make that guy a scapegoat because there's nobody really looking at it, looking at it from his perspective. And that is a, a pattern that once that gets into the, the literature, 
uh, as you point out, even someone, you know, Peter Cousins, who's a fine historian and others, will then you know, take what they've seen in, in two or three right. other sources. Right. And, and it, you know, that's what Frank Varney was showing has happened to Rosecrans and, and Grant. And it's, I guess that ties in with how we started the, the show at the very top. Are there sources or, or subjects yet to be tackled? Not only are there fresh sources but or subjects, but there are also old subjects that need to be re studied uh to to chip away at these myths so i mean go go ahead well i was just thinking if you look at just the official records themselves i mean how many volumes were they published in in the 19th century you know 80 or 90 or something but those are all online now and they're easily searchable and there's just a huge amount of material in them which i think to a great extent has not been dug up i mean there's again there's a a myth, basically, which comes from Sheridan's memoirs, kind of tying into Grant's memoirs, that Granger is responsible for the... Granger and Thomas are responsible for the... what, from some depiction, is an inadequate pursuit after the Battle of Missionary Ridge, after the Battle of Chattanooga. But it's not true. I mean, if you look at the official records, it's quite clear that Grant orders Thomas, who orders Granger at midnight of the the day of the battle at Missionary Ridge, that Granger is to head up as soon as possible to Knoxville. He's not to be pursuing the troops who are going into the direction of Ringgold in Georgia, but he's heading upriver to Knoxville, Tennessee. So Sheridan's implication is just wrong. You know, it's... I, and I guess if you're writing a book, you have to be prepared to to get into it and to argue even with distinguished generals. Well, I, I, I think that is true. The more more one reads, the more you begin to doubt everything you read because there are so many different perspectives on on everything. Um, and, and especially, and I don't mean that these guys are lying. I don't think no, Sheridan no. or Grant are lying in their memoirs. But the memoirs are written twenty years after the event, and and you know that they're not always going to be quite right. Well, I think that's something, you know, you as a journalist, uh, something I encountered in, in legal practice, uh, people have different stories. Honest people have different versions of the same story. Uh, everybody Absolutely. retells a story the way they filter it through their own experiences and expectations, and it comes out. And especially, as you point out, you had 20 years of, of time lag, and then uh, it's, it's no surprise. I, I find... Among Civil War historians right now, the use of memoirs and regimental histories and other books written 20 years uh, after the war are coming under more fire, or not more fire, but more scrutiny, that they're being used more carefully to take account of all these uh, things. And people are, are, are favoring the more contemporary, contemporaneous accounts uh, written right after something happens. But those have their own set of, of uh reasons to be inaccurate. Well, we're going to take another short break. We're going to come back. Uh, I want to ask you uh, about the subtitle, Savior of Chickamauga, certainly the high point of Granger's career. So we will come back and talk about that in just a minute. Our guest tonight, Robert C. Connor, author of General Gordon Granger, The Savior of Chickamauga and the Man Behind Juneteenth. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Robert C. Connor. And we're talking about General Gordon Granger, Union General, who served most notably at the Battle of Chickamauga, which uh, is part of the subtitle of the book. Uh, so, Bob, tell us about uh, Granger at Chickamauga. What what did he do here that earns the, the uh, title Savior of Chickamauga? Isn't well, that Thomas... I'm sorry. I'd say is what what I mean. Thomas is the rock of Chickamauga. Uh, yeah, Thomas is the rock of Chickamauga, and um, but Thomas could not have held on at Chickamauga had he not been reinforced by Granger, and the reserve corps. Granger was in in charge of the reserve corps, which was uh, fairly small, just a couple of brigades. It was. Um, it was. It had kind of ambiguous orders. It was guarding a mountain pass on the way back to Chattanooga. Chickamauga, as you know, is in northwestern uh, Georgia near the Tennessee line and also the Alabama line. <clears throat> and the right-hand side of the Union Army collapsed on the morning of September 20th. And in that collapse, several major generals, including Rosecrans, went pell-mell back to Northwoods, back to Chattanooga, in a very disorganized and rapid retreat. Granger's orders were... He, he, he was authorized to support 
Thomas, who was to his immediately to his south or to his right, but he was also supposed to be keeping open this mountain pass in the event of retreat. And as he heard this huge battle going on a few miles to his south, he was not on the telegraph, so he sent couriers to find Rosecrans to get explicit orders as to what he should do that day. He sent three different couriers who could not find Rosecrans, the reason being that Rosecrans and the rest of much of the rest of the army was in retreat. So Granger, on his own authority, marches to Thomas, who's about four miles away to the southwest of where Granger is. On the way, he's attacked by um, some troops under Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, Granger's subordinate, General James Stedman, is readying for a counterattack against Forrest, but Granger comes up to him, and another significant decision he makes, he decides not to bother with Forrest, to leave him there, dangerous though he might be, to the flank or the rear of of, of the Reserve Corps, because Granger is just determined to keep pressing on to relieve Thomas. Thomas sees, from, a, from Snodgrass Hill, he sees this contingent of troops coming in his direction, and he does not know, this is an extraordinary fact, it seems to me, Thomas does not know whether these are Confederate or Union troops. And if they're Confederate troops, it means that he cannot hold that position. It means, in my opinion, it means Thomas would have been defeated or captured. The whole army, in my opinion, the whole army of the Cumberland would have been defeated and captured in Chattanooga. And conceivably, the course of the war could have been altered because there would have been no victory at Chattanooga in two months. Lincoln's reelection could have been affected the next year. I mean, it was a hugely significant moment, in my opinion. But it turns out that these are federal troops. Granger comes up. At first, at first, Thomas is going to put him on the left of the Snodgrass Hill position where there's a gap between the troops there and another contingent of Union troops who are holding out at Kelly Field to the, to the uh, northeast. But then he sees an immediate threat on the far right of his position, the far west of this position, because Thomas is now facing, it's not Grass Hill, he's really facing south. Longstreet, has, who the subordinate general to Bragg, who's broken the, the right flank of the Union Army, has turned north now and is trying to go around Thomas's right flank, too. So Stedman, under Granger, personally leads the charge in support of Thomas's troops on Snodgrass Hill, and the parties attacking is Horseshoe Ridge, and he does drive back Longstreet's attack. And then for the next several hours, Granger is supporting Thomas, and then when Thomas leaves at 5 o'clock to coordinate the rest of the retreat with uh, the Kelly Field troops, Granger is left in command at Snodgrass Hill, and ultimately about 7 o'clock, he and the he first, and then the remaining troops at Snodgrass Hill joined the retreat. But because Thomas is able to hold on, the Union Army is able to retreat in something like good order the next day to Chattanooga, and ultimately, two months later, are able to win a victory there. So it's 
I mean, his role is, you know, clearly important uh, in this battle. But it, why then doesn't he maintain his his standing, uh, you know, as an important figure in, in the Civil War? I, we don't hear of him at the same level before or after Chickamauga. Well, it's mostly to do with his relationship with Grant, which is poor. Um, one, I, I mentioned Dana before, the um, the War Department civilian under Stanton, that after mm-hmm. Chickamauga, Dana is writing these glowing reports of Granger's conduct. But then when Grant comes, Dana, like Sheridan, I guess, hitches his star to Grant and, and immediately takes over Grant's perspective. And so then... Daner is spreading this myth that Granger is responsible for the delay at Missionary Ridge. And then there are the other things we mentioned briefly, the controversies about the pursuit. And I'm not saying Grant is all wrong in this. And from Grant's perspective, he wants these soldiers with this killer instinct, like Sheridan, who are just going to relentlessly press on. And he doesn't see Granger as that type of soldier. And whether he's... As we discussed before, I think Grant's a bit hard on Granger, on Rosecrans, on Thomas, all of whom played major roles in the Union victory, but Grant played, obviously, a much more significant role and wanted those kind of hard-driving, aggressive soldiers like Sheridan. So that's partly why Granger's star goes into Eclipse. He doesn't, unlike... um, like uh, Buell, for example, your Army of the Ohio guy, he doesn't mm-hmm. go out of the war altogether, but he almost does. He's eased out of the command of Fourth Corps in the spring of 1864, but he gets back in to the Army, into active duty, through mainly through the influence of Andrew Johnson, the civilian, the war governor of Tennessee, who with whom he's developed a relationship, and Johnson writes to Lincoln, and Johnson, being the vice presidential candidate, has a lot of pull, and so Granger is sent back into the war to Mobile, and he spends a large part of, he spends about eight months on the Mobile campaign, first uh, involved with Admiral David Farragut in capturing the forts uh, around Mobile Bay, that he's he's in command of all the Army troops in that operation, so it's a significant, significant command. And then in the winter, he's got a diversionary campaign. Um, and then in the spring of 1865, he's a corps commander in the campaign that finally captures Mobile. Now, you mentioned briefly that the one, one of the myths about Missionary Ridge is that Granger's too busy playing with artillery, distracted by directing an individual artillery battery. And that's a motif throughout the book. There are a couple other occasions where Granger seems to enjoy commanding, uh, uh, not just commanding artillery, but firing big guns, basically. Uh, he he it, does. Um, and yeah. there's sort of, because I guess mostly because of this missionary rich thing, there's kind of a, a joke among some historians who seem to sort of think how silly he is to be doing this and when he should be having his mind on larger things. But, in fact, Granger's armies use artillery very effectively throughout almost every campaign that he's involved with. He's often involved 
with siege warfare. He is at Mobile towards the end of the war and also um, in some earlier campaigns, such as uh, Island Number 10. And, and so Granger's use of artillery, he, he's an effective user of artillery, and I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of in, in that. And there are other stories come to mind, Longstreet and his staff at Antietam temporarily serving some Confederate guns, or uh, when I think of from the Army of the Ohio, uh, uh, Starkweather, who was a brigade commander, uh, got distracted at Perryville and ends up serving an artillery piece, holding a rammer and uh, you know fighting as a as an individual soldier when he should be commanding his brigade. He gets killed doing that, so there's no repercussion. But I guess there must be a temptation for these regular army guys on occasion to go back to their roots and, and do something they know how to do quite uh well, and Quite sometimes it's, it's not necessarily a distraction. I was, at Chickamauga, for example, that mm-hmm. I was referring to Granger's Reserve Corps sent in at the far right of Thomas's line. But Granger himself has wider responsibilities. And at one point in that battle, still under Thomas, he's very much concerned with the left part of the Snodgrass Hill line directing artillery, where there's that gap between... Snodgrass Hill and Kelly Field. And you know, those are significant things because you've got to hold that line. You can't have the Confederates drive a wedge between the two remaining parts of the Union battle line. So I think, you know, I guess I, I'm not completely a partisan of Granger's, but I think I am in this regard, is that I don't see it as a distraction. I see him, his willingness to involve himself with the actual fighting of battles is is something that was both effective and good for the morale of his troops. I think troops like to see generals who are willing to get down into the fighting. Now, we don't have time to export in detail, but say a few words about Juneteenth. Uh, That's less familiar than Chickamauga to a lot of listeners. Uh, What is it and what was Granger's role? Yeah, Juneteenth is, is interesting. It's, it's becoming, in the 21st century, it's reviving, if you like. It's, it's now a holiday celebrated in many states, and it celebrates the end of slavery. And it started in Texas on June 19th of 1865. On that date, Granger was in command of all United States troops in Texas, and Texas, unlike the rest of the South, was never conquered by the Union Army. It was, there was some military actions there, but the Confederates were by and large successful. So when Granger is sent there from Mobile after the end of the war and after the assassination of Lincoln, and he, his job is to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation in Texas. And Sheridan, who by now has, is, in, is a superior officer to Granger, he's serving directly under Sheridan, who's based in New Orleans, and Sheridan gives him a sample order of how to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. But Granger's order goes beyond Sheridan's in two critical ways. In one, he 
Sheridan had told the freed slaves that they must remain where they were. And there are really for practical reasons, because they didn't want to, they wanted to A, maintain law and order, and B, maintain the economy. But Granger does not order the slaves, he advises them, which is a key distinction, but he also puts some language in the order, in his Juneteenth order. Juneteenth is a African-American dialect word, which is the origins are June the 19th. But his order makes very clear that the freed slaves have all of the rights of anybody else. And this comes as a shock in Texas, because if you read the Texas newspapers at the time, they did not really believe that slavery was going to be abolished. It may seem extraordinary, but it's true. They thought that at least there'd be some system of forced labor. The Texas whites could not imagine there being a, uh, a free black population in Texas. So Granger's order comes as this enormous shock, and it is celebrated in Texas in subsequent years, and it's become a nationwide celebration among many African-American communities of the end of slavery, because it's this sudden event. Well, and really, it's it also is... one of the most significant documents in Reconstruction. Well, it... And the man behind it, General Gordon Granger, not well known uh, until now, but now we have this biography, General Gordon Granger, the savior of Chickamauga and the man behind Juneteenth, uh, written by our guest tonight, Robert C. Connor. Bob, thank you very much for sharing this with us and telling us about General Granger. Well, thanks for having me on, Jerry. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.